Agencies are supposed to protect their data systems from cybersecurity threats, especially those known as high-value asset systems. The Homeland Security Department Office of Inspector General looked at a high-value asset system operated by the Transportation Security Administration, and uh-oh, lots of missing pieces. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got the details from the Principal Deputy Inspector General Glenn Sklar and from the Acting Assistant IG for the Office of Audits, Craig Edelman. Glenn, we'll start with you. In general, high-value asset, these are subject to regular review for FISMA compliance, too, correct? That's what got you to look at the system in the first place? Indeed, that's correct. Tom, after the SolarWinds nationwide cyber attack in 2019, we really changed the way we look at DHS's cybersecurity, shifting our oversight away from compliance-based audits to more performance and technical-type reviews, including the Transportation Security Administration review we are here today to discuss. And this report is part of a series of reviews we're doing, looking across the entire Department of Homeland Security portfolio. So every component of DHS has high-value asset systems, and probably they have more than one, fair to say? Uh, That's correct. And we're really focused on the ones that present the potential greatest vulnerabilities, really trying to provide the best possible advice we can to DHS so they mitigate risk. And you picked one of several that are operated by TSA. Any particular reason for looking at that system? I imagine you can't tell us what's in there, but maybe you can. Craig? We cannot go into detail on what was in the system, but we can note that this is not just a high-value asset system. This is a Tier 1 high-value asset, which is designated by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So that means that it has a critical impact, not just to TSA, but to the entire nation. So this is an extremely important system with information that needs to be secured. Got it. I have a feeling, given the world news, this is probably more timely than we realized at the time. But again, won't pull from you, but we can guess what's probably in that system. Well, okay. so you looked at it in terms of what? What cybersecurity controls were in place under the NIST guidance and under CISA guidance, essentially? That's correct. We looked at 10 different uh, control families under the NIST guidance, uh, and, we f- and we found that there were deficiencies in eight of those controls, some of them significant. Yeah, tell us more. The controls are configuration management, risk assessment, and things like that. Right. Supply chain risk management, access controls, planning, awareness and training, assessment, authorization and monitoring, and contingency planning all had deficiencies. So each one of those characteristics has to have specific controls in place. For example, I would think assessment, authorization, and monitoring means who can get in there and do administrative work on it. It's also constantly monitoring the system to ensure that it's secure. In some in some cases, if there are vulnerabilities identified in, in that particular control family, you're supposed to have a plan of action and milestones to address that vulnerability. However, we found that all of TSA's open plans for addressing those vulnerabilities were overdue. One of them hadn't been addressed and had been open for five years. Yeah, in fact, you have a, a list of them from special publication 853, kind of the Bible for cyber from NIST. And uh, I see a lot of red on there, which means that they have <laughs> not done those things. What do you think the effect is of all of this? Does that mean the system is easily hacked ultimately? That means that it, there is a greater chance that an attack could occur. And if attack does occur, it's harder for TSA to respond to and recover from that cyber attack. 
So that means that not only could system be uh, inf system information be lost, but it'll be harder to bring the system back up so that it's functioning and supporting the role that it supports. Got it. We're speaking with Craig Edelman. He is the acting assistant IG for the Office of Audits and with Glenn Sklar, the principal deputy inspector general, both from Homeland Security's OIG. Well, what happened when you told TSA about what you found here? It couldn't have been a surprise. Yeah, yeah Tom, we were actually pleased with the response we got and that they're incredibly responsive and move right in to correct the deficiencies but we much rather have a situation where they find the problems rather than us. We really want DHS to be much more proactive and get in front of their inspector general rather than the reverse. So we are going to continue to do these types of reviews till we stop finding major deficiencies. And we've really changed the way we do these reviews, moving again away from more of a compliance-based review. It's much more technical testing, more of trust but verify, so that we actually are trying to uh, – be pretty aggressive in terms of uh, what we can find and what we can offer the department in terms of solutions. Well, to do a technical assessment means you have to have some technical means of pressure testing the system. I mean, do you try to gain access as an administrator, for example, that kind of thing, Craig? For this project, we did not do penetration testing. We did conduct an assessment of the system, both the security controls that were in place, which we did find challenges with, along with vulnerabilities that we identified in the system. During our testing of the vulnerabilities, we identified almost 300 unique critical high vulnerabilities from the over 1,000 workstations and servers we tested. Wow. I want to note that CISA puts together a catalog of known exploited vulnerabilities. These are the vulnerabilities that should be addressed right away. And we found of the almost 300 vulnerabilities, 12 were in this catalog of vulnerabilities that have already been exploited. So these are serious concerns. We also found that during our testing, we couldn't reach 700 workstations. This is in addition to the 1,000 that we did test. And what we found was that TSA had not been providing patch updates to the 700 workstations between May 2022 and November 2022 when we conducted our field work. So during that time, CISA had put together 203 known exploited vulnerabilities, and TSA had not been able to patch these workstations to address any of those vulnerabilities. Wow. So that gets under the subject of risk assessment, because they just it right. sounds like they didn't know what they hadn't done, basically. That's right. And if you don't do a good risk assessment, then everything else kind of falls out, like access controls and configuration management would derive after you have a good risk assessment, I would guess. That's what we found was that even in addition to these vulnerabilities that weren't being addressed, there were other issues down the line with the controls. Uh, for example, with the access controls, they couldn't provide an accurate list of system users. We also found that some people who had access to the system had already left the agency. These are contractors and federal employees. However, these inactive accounts had not been removed from the system. So you know, obviously that's concerning. What's more concerning is that some of these were privileged accounts. Those, a privileged account user has the ability to make updates or security updates on the system, software updates, maybe changing passwords. So those accounts are of particular concern and should be protected. 
However, they remained with access to the system, even though they were inactive for long stretches of time. Wow. And what does supply chain risk management mean in the context of an operate of an ongoing system like this? That's a good question. As Glenn mentioned, we, we changed our approach a little bit um, with the solar winds attack. And the solar winds attack occurred because there was an issue with the software's supply chain. So it's important to have a plan to ensure that your supply chain for building your technology is protected. And in this case, TSA did not have a plan to do so. Like you don't want an iCam or an identity and credential access management system from China, for example, as your iCam, that type of thing. Right. Exactly. All right. So you said TSA, though, is getting after it. But I guess the question is, they have a manager, they have a management problem. Probably if, if they were way behind on these details of this system, is that a systemic problem for TSA? Are you able to determine that, Glenn? Yes. So generally, we interface with the chief information officer for all of the department, and they've certainly been responsive and appreciative of what we found, and we are trying to propel them to move faster. It could potentially be a funding issue. It could be the multitude of legacy systems at the department. Having been here uh, 20 years ago when the department was first formed, I can tell you there are hundreds of legacy systems, and many of them have been consolidated, but certainly not all. Glenn Sklar is Principal Deputy Inspector General at the Homeland Security Department. Craig Edelman is the Acting Assistant IG for the Office of Audits. We'll post this interview along with a link to their findings at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.